0: We're going to be in Exodus 8, the coming swarm. But before we go there, I'd like you to turn to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16. The Pharisees approached Jesus. And of course, at this point in the gospel, things are winding down in his earthly ministry. And here's the exchange. The Pharisees, Matthew 16, 1, and Sadducees came up and testing him asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Matthew 16:2. And he answered and said to them, "When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning, Matthew 16:3, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times?" An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. Father, as we think about this idea of a coming swarm, we can't help but think of storm language and think of how many things are happening in our world right now, coalescing <laughs> And uh, we're not making any predictions here, but we're just saying we're on storm watch. And uh, Pharaoh was given at least 10 signs, if we add the first encounter with the serpents, 11. And yet his heart remained hard. And my prayer is that our culture, our country, with all that's going on, with what we've just been through in this last year, would not remain hard to the things of the gospel. And I do see signs of hope, even interacting with two uh, men in the last 24 hours who are not believers, but are showing signs that they're hungry to know more. Thank you for that. I pray that that would multiply because there are certainly so many things that are causing chaos in our world. And Father, if, if you don't have our attention now, I wonder what it will take. But I do pray that as we look at this message and what you did in ancient Egypt, and we know there's parallels to what's coming in the day of the Lord, that we would be on storm watch, that we don't don't need to be anxious. We know you're in control, but we would ultimately understand the signs of the times and know what we should do. In Jesus' name, if you agree, would you say amen? Amen. Now, the main text is Exodus chapter 8. We're at the fourth plague. And we pick up the account in Exodus 8, 20, the coming swarm. Exodus 8, verse 20. Now the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and present yourself, Exodus 8:20. before. The NIV says confront. The Hebrews literally stand your ground, present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. And say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. I want them serving me. I don't want them serving you. Now, Egypt has been bloodied, frogged, and bugged so far. The storm winds are about to come in the form of something that has left scholars a little bit perplexed because the Hebrew word can allow for some different things from dog flies to beetles. I will tell you that whatever showed up in Egypt back in the day <laughs> was not fun. And it was probably something that did bite people and was more than just a nuisance. And Nahum 1.3, for your note, says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord, Nahum three will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. So we've had three plagues, and now we have a fourth. And this time, God speaks to Moses, tells him to get up early in the morning, verse 20, present himself, take his stand. And unique to this particular uh, encounter is that there's no magicians and no Aaron. It's now come down to, at least in this case, to Moses. Confronting the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh is by the Nile. He's at the waters. And we've shared that the Nile was a god to the Egyptians. A very important god. And the fact that the Pharaoh has gone back down to the waters of the Nile indicates. Because remember we mentioned earlier that he's not just there bathing. Or going there to take a swim. There is some form of connection to his position and power and worship in him going down to the Nile, which reveals something interesting. That is that Pharaoh is still worshiping the same old gods and goddesses. That that river was just bloodied by the true God and he's still down there worshiping the same old idols that cannot save, cannot deliver, cannot do anything good in his life. Why do we do that? That our idols are proven to be Not only worthless, but dead. And that was one of the messages when the Nile became blood. Your God is dead. What you worship cannot produce life. Pharaoh went down to the water regularly to get life or get some sort of power to do what he was supposed to do, which was to bring equilibrium to Egypt. How was he doing? Not very good. The whole Egyptian world was in chaos. And Pharaoh's still down there by the riverside. And I would just tell you that if you keep going back to your old idols that have been proven to be dead over and over again, they're gonna do the same thing over and over again. All they're gonna do is pull you into their deadness. They can't give you life. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it what? To the full. But there's the Pharaoh. He still hasn't gotten the message. And there's Moses On the positive side, without Aaron confronting the Pharaoh, standing his ground. Now, there's some things implied here, and I mentioned to you that in the accounts uh, here, the narrative condenses so that we don't get all the back and forth. Some things are kind of filled in with what's told Moses, and then you fill in the blank that he went to the Pharaoh And the Pharaoh obviously hasn't even learned his lesson from the plague of gnats, which we dealt with last time. You would think that he'd be convinced by now, right? But he's not. He's back to his same old God, same old ways. But Moses is there. And this is something that struck me even this morning. And God has fulfilled something in Moses' life that I want to encourage you with. When Moses was at the burning bush and God revealed himself, Moses basically said to God, this is Exodus 3, about 10 through 12, who am I that I should go to the Pharaoh? And God said, I will be with you. And God gave him marching orders. And then remember when Moses made his excuses in chapters 3 and 4? I'm not good at talking. I I, I can't do it, Lord. And the Lord said, I will be with you. And now Moses has become... What God promised. And I'll tell you what, as a Christian and someone who's in ministry, I often battle with my humanity. I have long stretches where I battle with my humanity, my worthiness, my ability to do what God's called me to do. And God says, I will be with you. And then, have you you had this moment? where maybe something happens in your life, something good, something positive. You become a witness for Christ, and you kind of go like this. Wow, who was that? (laughs) Who was that that just shared all those Bible verses that I didn't think I knew? And you become what God promises you can be in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen? So if you've had a tough week, filled with doubts, we all have them Be of good cheer. Even Moses, who had his doubts and questions. I can't do it. I can't speak. God has made him what he promised to make him. And in Christ Jesus, we will become what God has promised that we will become. Now, we are new creations in Christ, but ultimately we're going to get new bodies. Amen? Amen. We're going to inherit a forever kingdom. We will become what God has promised. That's such wonderful news. No Aaron, no staff, but Pharaoh's saying, Oh no. <laughs> Can you imagine Pharaoh's down by the riverside doing his? He may even be singing to the Nile. That's what they did. They sung to the Nile. Oh, Nile, thank you, thank you. Whatever. <laughs> and here comes Moses, and Pharaoh had to be going, Oh no, because he knows what's coming. Every time Moses shows up, it's another plague. So there it is. There's the confrontation. A little early morning warfare. Wake up early, stand your ground. Three times in Ephesians 6, 11 through 13, we are told to stand firm, to take our stand. Philippians 4, 1, we are to stand firm, my beloved. And the only way that you can stand firm is in the power of God. And that Ephesians 6, 11 through 13 is the armor of God. Put on the armor so that you can take your stand. Amen? And when you feel like you're wobbly and you're gonna fall over, the Lord is the one who will make you stand. Amen? And so there's Pharaoh. There he is down by the water. His world is in chaos. His people have to be questioning his leadership. For if you will not let my people go, 21, behold, I will send, God will send, swarms of insects on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of insects and also the ground on which they dwell. Sometimes it's the little things in life that can certainly bother us. (laughs) One fly in the house can be trouble. Two or three flies in the house could be considered a disaster, especially in my Italian household. But can you imagine swarms of insects flying into your dwelling and being everywhere on the ground where you walk so that it's crunch, crunch, crunch? Well, that's what's going on. And God says, here's a play on words in Hebrew. If you don't send them out, my people, I'm going to send the swarms in. You send my people out, or an army of insects is coming in. And as I mentioned, got to fill in the blanks here. There's no record of a reply from Moses, even to the earlier plague, but he obviously has stayed uh, difficult and uh, calloused. The fourth judgment is the plague of flies. Uh, New American Standard, the older version, has... uh, Flies there, I think also NIV, ESV, New King James. Insects, I'm sorry, is the older New American standard. All the modern updated translations have it as a plague of flies. The biblical term is not limited to house flies and may in fact refer to several different kinds of flying insects. J. Vernon McGee says, These flies were most likely sacred beetles or the scarab, as they were known in Egypt. These scarabs, many of of gold, are found in the tombs of Egypt. They were sacred to the sun god, Ra. The severity of the plague is reflected in the fact that Pharaoh was willing to reach some sort of compromise with Moses at this time. The Egyptian scarab or beetle spoke of eternal life. Imagine this most sacred thing becoming a curse to your people and a plague on the land. We have a photo that I wanted to show you of Uh, beetles that showed up on the seashore in England. Uh, There you can see what showed up there. They say hundreds of thousands of these things washed up on the shore. People were taking their morning walk and began to film them and take pictures of them. And sometimes, you know, when you look at things like in history and things that are questionable and kind of An anomaly or something weird. Maybe it's a newspaper clipping from 100 years ago. Something washes up on the shore and you're kind of like, gee golly, wow, that's weird. You know, is the photograph a little hazy? But this happened in April of 2020. (laughs) And they say it could have been a weather phenomenon or whatever that caused the beetles to fall into the ocean and then wash up on the shore. But to give you an idea, the swarms of insects that happened in the Egyptian plague probably was something similar to this. And they were also on the ground where you walked. So don't imagine a few house flies where you need your fly swatter. This was a terrible, dark, scary plague. And it would move into the land of Egypt in such a way that it would frighten people to the core. Shane told a story a few weeks ago of when he was at Calvary Chapel Bible College and there was, a, what they do is the students serve in some sort of help around the campus and I don't know if you guys know, know this, but Calvary Chapel Bible College in Murrieta is now up for sale, uh, so they're, they're selling the property. But anyway, uh, so in Murrieta, a young student was up on a lift and he was uh, trimming a tree And somehow he hit a beehive and uh, he started screaming. And when people heard his screams, they thought that maybe he had cut his arm or had cut off a finger or done something terrible because he was like screaming like bloody murder kind of screams. Well, it turns out that he had hit a hive and he was being stung by bees. And when they finally realized what was happening, they lowered him down and I think he got his way uh, into, there's se- several different things of water around the campus and he fell into the water, but I can't remember the number of stings. Shane will have to straighten me out on this, but it was something like 900 and something bee stings. And uh, he, the guy nearly died and they, the doctor told him that if he ever gets stung by a bee again, it's gonna be probably lethal to him. And uh, there, there is evidence that whatever this insect was, it had the ability to bite and even like suck blood out of you. So this just wasn't like you're being buzzed. You know those, those beetles that don't do anything, but they, they seem to have no eyesight. They fly up and they whack you in the head and you're like, Aah! And people freak out. Uh, but they don't do anything. So you know once you realize what they are, you can kind of beat them around. You can play volleyball with them if you want. But, but these are different. The, the Hebrew language includes the idea of fastening and biting. And Spurgeon says, when it pleases God by his judgments to humble men, he is never at a loss for means he can use, lions or lice, famines or flies. In the armory of God, there are weapons of every kind from the stars in their courses to the caterpillars in the hosts. And you can fill up in everything in between. God does not have a shortage of things that he could use. And it's something that we should be thinking about because Jesus Christ holds everything together. Many mysteries, including in the scientific minds about how things hold together in our universe. And it's held together by the power of God. And if God were to let go, it would be an ugly, ugly scene. And things that we take for granted, even in the delicate balance of the universe, and so forth, we should not. And even in the way that our bodies work is really amazing. And so the swarm would come. The Septuagint has it as a dog fly. The Hebrew word is arob, A-R-O-B. And it's some sort of pest destroying things. And I think we have one more slide back there. Let me just show you. Uh, There's another group of photos I wanted to show you. And this is So what they found in um, ancient Egypt in the tombs is little amulets. And the amulets reflected these Egyptian gods. And this is the scarab. And so you can see it's uh, on the one to the far right. It's uh, connected to the Ankh which is supposed to represent life. So sometimes you see people wearing something that looks like a cross, and it's not. It's actually the Ankh. It's an Egyptian symbol. And it was often amalgamated with the beetle. And so the beetle and uh, the scarab and then the god Ra were connected, and the sun pointed to life. And so this is, they even pulled these out of the uh, Tombs with the Egyptian mummies, and these things were often connected to the chest of the mummy. And so these uh, particular creatures, John J. Davis connects the fourth plague to the uh, ichneumon fly, which deposits eggs of other living things in which the Egyptians considered a manifestation of the god Uetiket. Others argue that the flies were really flying beetles, also known as scarabs. Scarabs apparently frequently on Egyptian... "...were found frequently on Egyptian monuments, mummies, charms, and amulets. The scarab was sacred to the Egyptians." Now listen to this. "...they had observed industrious beetles forming animal dung into round spheres that they rolled back into their holes in the ground. They soon made a connection in their minds between the spheres of dung and the sun in the sky." And conceived the idea that a giant beetle rolled the sun from evening until morning through the underworld. Until the sunrise brought it back into the sky once more. Thus the scarab became an emblem of the sun, which for the Egyptians represented eternity and the abiding life of the soul. Not surprisingly, the god of resurrection, who was called Kepra, was depicted as a beetle. (laughs) The God of resurrection is a beetle. I knew the beetles were famous for a reason. She loves you, yeah, yeah. Sorry, anyway. So as bizarre as we might see this, have you noticed that people have a lot of bizarre things in their businesses and in their homes, things that they think will protect them, things that they think will impart life or good luck or whatever it might be, necklaces that you wear, you know, charms and amulets that you think might, you know, give you a little bit of uh, protection from the darkness. Even the uh, idea of trick-or-treating and people dressing up like uh, dark figures, all connected to a night when it, the, the spirit world was supposed to invade the earth on October 31st. This is what people do. And they, they did it in the ancient world, and they still do it today, just in different forms. Have you noticed the kinds of books that sell like hot cakes in the bookstores? Just do this and you'll get this. Just pull this lever and you'll get this. Oh yeah, wear this and you'll get this. That's what people do. Another possibility is that the plague of flies was directed against Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies. Some Egyptians worshipped Beelzebub as their protector and guardian. Since his role, listen, was to protect their land from swarms of flies and other natural disasters. He was supposed to be Lord of the Flies. He functioned as a sort of insurance policy. If anything, Beelzebub was a representation of Satan's power over Egypt. I want you to see God's sense of humor here. What does God do? He allows the symbol of their uh, idea of insurance policy and eternal life to invade their land in such numbers that it becomes an absolute nightmare. What they looked to for life brought heavy inconvenience into their life. They had to stare their gods in the face, so to speak. (laughs) On their person everywhere, stepping on them. Crunch, oh no, I crunched another one. This is what God did, and there is humor in this to say, okay, as Spurgeon put it, oh, Egypt, here are your gods in great numbers. Is this what you believe in? Is this what you wear around your neck? Okay, they're going to join you for about a week in massive numbers, so you can stare at what your gods are. And I think what God is saying is I want you to step back, Egypt, and stare for a moment in close proximity at what you trust, of what it's come down to. Since you've rejected me and you worship the creature rather than the the creator who's blessed forevermore, I'll let you hang with the creature for a while. So you can get a close-up look and a taste at what they'll do for you, which is nothing but cause you more problems and even become a picture of the power of Satan. And here's something else interesting, and this is unique to this plague. It says, they're gonna come, 21, the insects on your servants, on your people, into your houses. They'll be on you in your houses. They're gonna be on the ground. But on that day, look at 22, I will set apart the land of Goshen. That's where Israel landed and dwelt even back in the time of Joseph where my people are living so that no swarms of insects will be there in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. Now, in looking at where Goshen was located, uh, I was reading a commentator this week, and he said, most likely in the eastern delta region, so that Israel's location within Egypt was somewhere in the center of the nation. Which is quite interesting because sometimes when you hear about a distinction between Israel and Egypt, you kind of get this visual in your mind that somehow Israel was off in some corner of Egypt and was blocked out from the plagues and then everything else was over here. And it's still a miracle, but apparently they resided right in the center of the nation. And yet, in this particular instance, in this plague, they would not be touched by it. Some of you may be asking the question, does that mean that the other plagues touched them? We don't know for sure. This is the first time that God has articulated that this won't come near his people. Maybe uh, Israel experienced minor inconvenience. We don't know for sure. But this is the first time God says, Goshen will have no insects. They'll all be in the Egyptian areas and the Egyptian households. Now I want you to think of the irony. The gods that Egypt worships, life and protection from terrible swarms of insects, are all on them. And if they look over to Goshen, there's the Israelites walking around. (whistles) What a beautiful day. Nothing buzzing my way. (laughs) And you're like, hey! (laughs) Sorry for that morning song, but I know. You guys are getting used to the early service. (laughs) And you look over to the Israelites, this desert God that they believe in, and nothing's bugging them. And our gods that are supposed to protect us from the swarms are everywhere. And God is giving a message that I hope you can see. You've trusted in the wrong thing, Egypt. You've trusted in the wrong thing, Pharaoh. How many more times do you need to see that I am God? Now, as I mentioned last week, God will protect us from the things that ultimately bug and swarm this world, although, I will say, if the first three plagues did affect Israel, we will say that the church, in let's just think about the last year, has not been, uh, you know, immune to what's happened in this world. Uh, sometimes I, I wonder how many times God has saved me from things that I don't even know. Amen. How many times he may have healed my body, and I, don't, I didn't even know what he did. But I'm thinking about ultimate things, too. Like, you know, the Egyptians were thinking about eternal life and the beetle and stuff. And, you know, Jesus looked at the apostles when a bunch of people walked away, and Jesus said to the 12, Do you want to go away? And Peter said, Lord, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You alone have those words. Not any other false god or goddess. And there are many people walking around who think they're gonna find life maybe in their good works, maybe in their karma. 1 John 5.13 says, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. Jesus said, this is eternal life. Or, I'm sorry, looking thinking of John Three, this is the judgment that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. This is the condemnation. And so this is what you need to see, I think, in this particular plague. You're watching life and protection uh, in God's covenant people, protected from the storm or the swarm. And you're watching Egypt, a type of the world, under the judgment of God. And this is what Exodus is conveying. It's a book about salvation. But the opposite of salvation is what? Condemnation. And you can look at John 3 36 that those who don't believe in the Son are condemned already. I know it's not popular, but it's what Jesus said and it's what the Bible said. I will, says, I will, on that day, 22, set apart NIB, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people are living, so that no swarms of insects will be there in order that you may know. I want you to see it's the purpose of God's glory. You could even call it evangelistic. That you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. I will set apart the land of Goshen. I will deal differently with the land. In fact, this is a word in Hebrew that speaks of redemption. It's I will... Make a redemption between your people and my people. That is, my people are going to be set apart as redeemed, your people set apart as condemned. And that's the distinction. And there's a day coming, brethren, when we will be counted. People get ready, Jesus is coming. Don't you know there's a day when we will be counted? I remember years ago going to the Harvest Crusades when they were first starting out and little Crystal Lewis would come out and they would start that song. People get ready, Jesus is coming. Soon we'll be going home. And she would belt it out and she would go into these high notes. There's a day when we will be counted. Jesus put it this way. I will separate the sheep from the goats. And to be saved is to be set apart for God's purposes. I want you to hold your place in Exodus and go to Psalm 91. Psalm 91, uh, most scholars believe, was written by Moses. We studied it as we were going through the early days of COVID and all of that stuff. We found some refuge and hope in it. It's written by Moses. Keep that in mind. And I think you're going to see some beautiful connections to this distinction that God makes as he sets apart Israel. Psalm 91, one, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, Psalm 91, two, in whom I trust. It is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night, verse 5, or the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not, what? Approach you or come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, notice, nor will any plague come near your tent. He will give your angels his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. Back to Exodus chapter eight. Did Moses have this plague in mind? Probably. I will put a division 23, Exodus eight, literally a, a redemption between my people and your people. Tomorrow the sign shall occur. You like tomorrow, Pharaoh, that's what you chose when the frogs were gonna go away. Tomorrow, only one more night with Froggy. Okay, tomorrow, the swarms are coming. These are two verses to write down for your notes. First Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 says, "'For they themselves report about us "'what kind of reception we had with you, "'how you turned to God from idols "'to serve the living and true God.' And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 11 says, Since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, Whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Live a set-apart life because Jesus is coming. And I think in the modern evangelical world, we've kind of lost this, this sense of the second coming of Jesus Christ where he will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. We are to look for the coming of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I don't know how many of us are truly living in the light of his return. It's easy to get distracted. And God says that you may know that I am in the midst of the land, that I am setting apart my people. This will be a sign. So the last days comes to mind. Different positions on for example, the rapture of the church. Some people hold to a pre-tribulation rapture. Some people to a mid. Some people hold a pre-wrath view. Some people hold a post-tribulation view. In the post-tribulation view, they teach that the church will go through the entire 70th week of Daniel, and that Jesus will return at the end, and that's when he will do the separating, if you will. This one, one person well-known to me that held this view was Dr. Walter Martin. And part of the view is this, that that view holds that when God judges, his people will experience a special protection and being set apart from the world, Egypt, if you will, so that when the plagues of judgment come, they don't touch the people of God. Now that's one view. And you may have wondered, why would someone ever hold a post-tribulation view? Well, that's One way that they kind of walk it out is they believe there will be a parallel between what happened in Egypt and how Israel was supernaturally protected and what will happen in the last days. Now, here's another thing to be thinking about. There is a difference, please hear what I'm about to say, between tribulation and wrath. And the difference is this. Jesus said, in this world, you will have... (laughs) tribulation. Was Israel experiencing tribulation in Egypt? Oh, yeah. How long did it last? A long time. Hundreds of years, right? I don't know that the whole time was terrible uh, enslavement. It wasn't, but it was going on for a while. They were tribulating, if you will, in Egypt. But when the wrath came, God set his people apart so that they did not taste the wrath of God. Here's the important thing to remember. We have not been appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are in the camp of God's redeemed people. However he does it on that day, makes no never mind to me. (laughs) I just wanna know that I'm not under his wrath. Amen? And here's the good news. Jesus Christ took the wrath at the cross. And the distinguishing mark, if you will, it's who's in Christ and who is not. But think of a cross for a second. It's what side of the cross are you on? Has Jesus tasted the wrath for you? Or are you not in Christ Jesus? Because if you're not in Christ Jesus, then you are already under the wrath of God. Kirk Cameron, being interviewed about the method of... uh, Uh, Ray, what's his last name? Ray Comfort's uh, evangelism method to use the law to convince people that need a savior. I'm not saying you should do this every time, but but it does work. Sometimes you need to come in with grace and and the goodness of God and the cross, especially if someone's broken. But the law of God can be effective to, to the prideful. And you should use the law of God to get people's attention. To know that God's wrath is going to be satisfied and it's either going to be paid for by Christ. It has been paid for. But you got to be in Christ because if you're not in Christ, then you are still under the judgment of God. And here's where I was going with Kirk Cameron. People question the method. And Kirk quoted John 3, 36. And he said, well, look, the Bible says they're already under the wrath of God. I'm not telling them anything the Bible doesn't say. Now, I would pray for discernment in using that method. And normally, if I use it, I use myself as an example. I say, well, I've broken just about every one of the commandments. So uh, this is what happens when I break God's law. He's holy and just, and he's going to judge. But here's the good news. So sometimes you have to start with the bad news so you can get to the good news so people know why the good news is so good. Amen? And Jesus did this often in his ministry with the law. Behold, Revelation 3, 9, and 10, to the faithful church of Philadelphia... I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, Revelation 3, 9, and 10, who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet. That's what Pharaoh is about to do in asking for prayer and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. I will keep you through it is the language. And this is why some people believe that this is what God will do. He will protect his people when judgment comes. I believe that the church will be raptured before the wrath comes, but that's an in-house debate. And then the Lord did so. He sent the swarms, 24, and there came a great, the Hebrew word "kabed," a dense or literally heavy, Group of swarms of insects into the house of Pharaoh. Don't you love how his house is a special target mentioned first? Yeah. <laughs> Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Who's there? Anyway. And the houses of his servants. Now, not just, not just blowing around the land. Not just on the outside of the house. Gee, isn't it wonderful we put the double pane windows in recently? No. And the houses of his servants, and the land was laid waste. Literally, the land was ruined, ESV, corrupted, New King James, because of the swarms of insects in all the land of Egypt. Can you put up the ugly photo of the beetles one more time? The land was ruined. Probably a stench, a corruption. But more than that, people say that the land is a personification of the people. It's one thing to say the land was ruined. Ah, terrible, you know. They're not growing crops over here, or this is happening over there. But the implication is the people of the land. The land represents the people, they were ruined. Talk about a bad week, talk about chaos and questions. I just interacted with two gentlemen in the last 24 hours and I'm not sure that they're believers, but, but they're talking about spiritual things and looking at our world and even unbelievers are going, wow, biblical plagues ain't that far away, right? When we start looking at what's going on in the world. And so the insects were everywhere, the land was ruined, it was eaten up. Psalm seventy eight forty five says God sent among them swarms of flies which devoured, literally ate the Egyptians alive. Psalm 78, 45, and frogs which destroyed them. Literally the Egyptians were being eaten alive. Wow. What would happen now? Well, Pharaoh didn't call the magicians. They're nowhere to be found. I think they're on vacation. I think they needed a long extended vacation. <laughs> They're nowhere, and he doesn't call for them. Notice what happens next. Pharaoh 25 called for Moses, and here is Aaron, and said, Go, okay, go sacrifice to your God, but do it what? Within the land. Okay, if you, this is what you want to do, you want to go worship your God, all right, go ahead. He's a politician, isn't he? Master manipulator. But do it within the boundaries of the land. Now, Moses had said, no, we got to go three days journey into the wilderness. This is what God wants. No, do it within the land. Don't go do too far. Stay within the land Okay, if you're going to worship your God, then worship your God. <laughs> He's probably hitting bugs off of himself. <laughs> if you, if you, if you got to worship, Moses standing there, There's not one near him. Right, Aaron's standing there, not one near them. But Pharaoh. <laughs> People that used to fan him with things are slapping things probably off of his head. was the, the home alone movie when the spiders at the on the one guy <laughs> Marv <laughs> don't, do, don't do, ah! anyway the flies were getting under pharaoh's skin. Let me ask you a question: How long would you endure until you called the hotline? How many times do you think Pharaoh may have done something like this well if There was a beetle right in front of him to talk to so he could do this quite easily. If you guys are the gods, (laughs) uh, could you save us now? Could you all just go away? Wasn't working. So we don't know the in-betweens. Some of the stuff is assumed, but he calls for the right guys. But he wants a compromise. He's a politician. Go ahead. Worship your God, but stay in Egypt. One writer says, evil is always suggesting some compromise. To listen to it is to remain enslaved. It was a big enough concession that most people would have taken Pharaoh upon upon his offer, says Riken. If Moses had been in a mood to compromise, it would have been easy to rationalize. This is the best offer we're going to get. He might have said, why don't we take it? After all, the really important thing is that we offer sacrifice to God, not where we do it. The really important thing is that we do it, not where and how. Does this sound vaguely familiar to any of you? Oh, you guys, you guys can worship, but we only want 10 people in your buildings in Canada. Well, what if I have a congregation of 1,000? Well, then do 100 services on a Sunday, 10 at a time. Oh, and we don't want you singing when you get together, because we know that that is a super fair. So we can't sing. And the government says, well, yeah, you know, it's, it's okay. Look, I, I pray, I pray before a meal. I understand what you guys want, but, right? We'll put aside all the science for a second, which I think many people have done. The contemporary church has made many compromises and I'm not just talking about COVID kind of stuff. Amen? I look at the landscape of the church today, frankly, brothers and sisters, and sometimes I hear what's going on elsewhere. I hear hear other messages and sometimes I'm encouraged, but sometimes I can't believe what's going on in the church. I can't believe where we've gotten to to try to bring numbers in and the number of compromises that have occurred. Well, do we negotiate? You can go to church, but don't go out and share your faith. Don't go, to, don't go out on the mission field. Stay within the land. Isn't that taking things a little too far? This partial concession suggested Uh, has two later partial concessions. One, you may go, but leave your children and your women behind. Okay, you you get spiritual, but leave your kids to us. Two, you may go out, but leave your flocks and possessions behind. We don't want your possessions involved in your faith. Still hear the same lure from the roaring lion seeking people to devour. Worship God, but don't take it too far. Confine it to one hour on a Sunday morning. Worship God, but let me have your kids. Worship God, but leave your possessions out of it. Sound familiar? It's everything that's happening right now. But Moses said, It's not right to do so, for we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God. Look at Moses taking this stand. <laughs> What are we won't, uh, for we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. And if we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? Here's the deal. The animals intended to be sacrificed, such as bulls and rams, were sacred in Egypt. Bulls were sacred representing Egypt's gods and goddesses. To Apis, cows to Isis, calves to Hathor, rams to Ammon, and so forth. Rioting and bloodshed certainly would have occurred had they done it within the land. And maybe that's what Pharaoh wanted. Stay within the land, because maybe in his mind he was thinking, you know, if they do these sacrifices to these animals that we consider gods, my people will go crazy and we'll have riots and bloodshed, and maybe the job will get taken care of. One writer says to draw a comparison, sacrificing bulls among the Egyptians would be like a pig roast at a synagogue or cooking burgers in front of a Hindu temple. It was gonna cause problems. And he says, we must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. We will obey him. Jesus said, if you love me, obey me. Amen? That was kind of a weak amen, but. (laughs) Time to get out of Egypt. In our world of moral chaos, You know what's happening? And this may be hard for some of you to hear, but this is what it is. People are saying that you can be a Christian, but you can defy a clear moral command of God and still be in good standing with God. And that doesn't fly, brethren. What's what's really happening there is people are fooling themselves. They're playing a game. I can remain morally... uh, in rebellion to God, and I can still call myself a Christian. Now, I'm not talking about everyday struggles that we all have. I'm talking about being an open, unrepentant sin and saying, I believe it's okay for me to do this and still do what I do, as a Christian, in quotes. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away. And then Say a little prayer for me. (laughs) And as you're going out, I could use some prayer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can. It looks like you're having a bad week, Pharaoh. Pray for me. Pray for me. He doesn't say, pray for my people. What kind of leader is this guy? (laughs) Pray for me. Crunch, crunch. (laughs) Look, I, I know desperate people ask for prayer. Talk to the big man upstairs. I don't care anymore. Get these beetles out of here. And Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I shall make supplication to the Lord that the swarm of insects may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants. From his people tomorrow, you look like you really bugged Pharaoh. Only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. You got a bad track record, Pharaoh. Every time you get a little space of relief, you change your mind. You go back, you renege. You know anybody like that? It sounded good. We're, uh, this, uh, we're making a declaration. We're going to sign it this week. This is what we're now doing. Get a little relief. Wow. Well. And Moses went out from Pharaoh and he prayed for him. He made supplication to the Lord. We're almost done. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of insects from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people. Not one remained. <laughs> Can you imagine that? That's a miracle. Can you imagine what a relief that must have been to be living in this terrible situation? Know that Moses told you he was gonna pray. Know the timing and have it lifted. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Spurgeon says they were not Pharaoh's people. Pharaoh never chose them. He had never bought them, brought them where they were. He had not fought with them. And overcome them. They were not captives in war, Israel, nor did they dwell in territory which was the spoil of a fair conflict. He had no business saying, I will let you go, or he had no business having control over the people in the first place. Do you see the implication there, brothers, sisters? He had no business claiming to control over them in the first place. Oh, I'll let them go. I won't let them go. Father, as we think about our world, we see how applicable many of these things are. And we thank you that you are faithful to come and judge in your time. You are merciful. We know how long you wait until you act, how patient you are. You delight in compassion and loving kindness. But you have fixed a day when you will judge this world in righteousness, and there will be a day when we will be counted. And every one of those examples that I can think of depict the judge as Jesus. That the one doing the separating, the one saying, I know you, but I don't know you, is Jesus. And sometimes people say, oh, what's the big deal about Jesus, Jesus? Jesus. Well, the the deal is that Jesus is God. And Jesus, thank you that you being the judge was, you were willing to come down and take the judgment, to be plagued at the cross, to stand in the gap, to be treated as though you deserved judgment, though you were completely innocent to take that wrath at the cross, to pay my ransom, to set me free. And that's what we celebrate as a church this morning. We celebrate freedom, and Israel is about to be set free, and there's more plagues to come, but we know ultimately it's gonna be about your glory, and it's gonna be about a people set apart for your purposes. Thank you that you were so gracious to Make yourself known to us. Thank you that many of us can reflect on a moment in life when we were bugged and surrounded and everything was wrong and you saved us. You delivered us. You called us to yourself. Let us not forget who we are, Lord, because this world can press on us. Our humanity can get the best of us. We have an enemy, but we know, Lord, that you are faithful. And we watch Moses take his stand here and become confident and bold all because it's you working in him, not him, but your power perfected in weakness. And so, Lord, I pray that you would take our weakness and turn it into completeness. And I ask over this congregation, this group that has come this morning, those who are watching via stream, that you would bless them, keep them, Let your beautiful face shine upon them and give them peace. And those who don't know you, Lord, they cry out to the Savior and the Redeemer to save them and set them free. In Jesus' name, and if you agree, would you say amen?